Ohio Governor Mike DeWine set up a big moment yesterday with his speech about the coronavirus and then pretty much let everybody down by saying almost nothing. We'll be talking about that on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with regular Laura Johnston and a special guest in our columnist, Layla Tassi. So let's get straight to it. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine give a speech Wednesday night to rally Ohioans to fight the coronavirus without offering them any specific steps he would take to ramp up the battle? You know, Laura Johnston, we talked about this yesterday and we speculated on four different possible things he might do in this. He might talk about the schools or the bars or a shutdown or whatever, because he created a moment, right? He, he set up this 530 speech to talk about it. And then what I've seen pretty universally is he said nothing. I mean, it was a kumbaya speech and I'm counting on you, Ohio. And I guess the question that is worth discussing here is, has he completely lost his way? This man who started the coronavirus pandemic with with national attention for his bold strokes of leadership and listening to the scientists, he seems completely befuddled now. Yeah, everybody was thinking this was going to be a big moment for Ohio. This 5.30 p.m. speech, I had people texting me saying, do you know what he's going to say? We had lots of people listening to our podcast yesterday in which we talked about what he might say. And I think people were thinking. It was a, it was the record. I mean, we've never had listens like we had yesterday. Everybody wanted to talk about this. So, yeah, right. this was, a so this high- was a just high profile big time moment for Ohio. And then we, I think everybody was like, that's it. I mean, the memes on Twitter were were pretty hilarious. Somebody had like a basketball player who was like blocked, you know, like just this idea that this was going to be this big slam dunk for Ohio and then it was like nothing. And so there and, and people on my subtext, my text message uh, platform that I sent out, people were asking the same thing. People wanted more substance. They wanted maybe a statewide mask order. They expected some kind of bomb drop announcement. And what they got is the governor appealing to our better angels. Well, yet, yet again, he again, actually used yeah. that phrase. And it was the equivalent of a disappointed dad speech, as one guy put it. Some people saw it as a warning that if we can't get this together, if we can't voluntarily do the right thing, he'll pound us with a hammer. But I mean, I can't think that he's going yeah, to get hammered today he, in the news conference. Yeah, I the the problem is that he compared us to Florida and Arizona and said a month ago Florida and Arizona were where we are right mm-hmm. now. So if we don't do something in the next thirty days, we're not gonna we're not gonna be in good shape. So please wear a mask and, and don't go to a family reunion and don't go to the barbecue. I mean, that was the, the if you're looking for substance, it was. Wear a mask and don't go do those things because we all want to be safe this fall. The problem with it is it's not it's not working. I mean, the people the people who are going to wear masks with his advocacy are already wearing masks and the people who aren't are ignoring the advocacy. So so what concrete steps can you take? to to do that and and maybe it's not a mask order maybe as we've talked before it's an incentive it's also they know through contact tracing now where some of this stuff is spreading so why not target that you know target the bars and if you don't want to close the bars down then peel off highway patrol people to go visit bars right. and 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 enforce it something of substance that will actually 
slow it down because just appealing to people, he's been appealing to people since March. That that train's left the station. So I think most people walked away going, wow. Well, I don't think you can see it. It's everywhere. There was nothing here that this this was a waste of 25 minutes. And that's why I get back to my question. Has he just lost his way? You know, in the beginning, Amy Acton was by his mm-hmm. side and they were a unified front. He and Amy Acton and, the, and uh, John Houston, Lieutenant Governor, united front moving boldly to to protect Ohioans. And and now it's that that speech was just I know and bladder. I think I mean, a lot was, of people are missing Amy Acton and the the strong science that was like you know here's here's where we are here's where we could be and we haven't had a doctor regularly at the briefing since Amy Acton left I think a lot of people missed that and that's what we got a lot of kudos for at the beginning was this science based approach and we don't see the science aside from when he put the color coded map in place and and like read through a whole lot of statistics for like 12 counties last week. We haven't seen the, this is happening, scientific data shows it, therefore we are doing this. Instead, it's like, we want to send our kids back to school, please wear a mask. But you could make the argument, and I would, that that color-coded thing he put together was almost a distraction. As we pointed out in a story this week, it's pretty much meaningless. Right. There's, there's no other than the mask mandate. The mask mandate is real, but the enforcement is a question. Right. Because because there are people that just aren't wearing them. We'll have to see what he does. He's supposed to give a briefing today. He hasn't canceled it yet. We'll have to see how it goes today. He did say at the beginning, I know people are looking for what my latest health orders will be. That'll be for another day. Maybe it's today. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Cleveland Housing Court balancing the mandate to provide public access to its virtual hearings while protecting people appearing in the court from public shaming? Leila Tassi, this is a fascinating case. I really enjoyed talking to you about it as you worked on your column because it forced me to break free of traditional thinking. We've always been the champion of full access all the time to everything. And in this case, we've kind of gone a little bit off, which will shock traditional journalists. And if our former First Amendment attorney, Dave Marburger, listens to this, he's going to have a heart attack. (laughs) So how about setting this up a little bit with what the issue is? And then we'll talk about the the First Amendment issues involved. So so the Cleveland Housing Court had instituted a, a moratorium on evictions for the first few months of the pandemic, and that lifted last month, and we were expecting a flood of evictions from not only new filings, but from a backlog of hundreds of cases that were waiting. We had heard that the court was going to be using Zoom, as everyone in the whole world is using Zoom, to conduct yeah, eviction right. hearings uh, remotely. But but as the court reopened, they were still fumbling with issues related to software licensing and public access to hearings and things like that. They said they needed a few weeks to figure it all out. And we were like, okay, well, all right, we'll, we'll see what happens. But as of last week, they were still having problems. And we had heard through reporting uh, from my colleague, Eric Heisig, that at least three tenants were accidentally locked out of their Zoom hearings, uh, resulting in default judgments against them. So those eventually got straightened out. Uh, but, but I found it upsetting that the court wouldn't just post the Zoom links to the docket. I mean, we're at this critical moment with so many new cases being filed. It occurred to me that if magistrates are feeling overwhelmed and if nobody's watching, what's to prevent them from just kind of rushing through these cases uh, just to get through their crowded dockets? 
And so, you know, it seemed to me that, you know, why not just make it all public, put it on the docket, let anybody tune in just the way you would when you could just wander in from the street and sit in on a courtroom proceeding. Uh, so I sought out a conversation with with housing court judge Monet Scott, and I, I fully expected to write a column just demanding that they post these Zoom links to the docket. But her response to to that really gave me a lot to think about. She was she was very very sensitive and protective of the tenants that came that come before her. Okay, but hold but hold on. So for people that are not familiar with the way courts work, and there are a lot of them. The way things work now, anybody can walk into a court hearing and sit down and watch what happens. Not many people do because, you know, people have to work and it's not always the most scintillating thing. But but there is access to the courts. It's it's part of the accountability of elected judges. You get to go in, you get to watch, you get to learn about Mm -hmm. it. So so when you move it into the virtual, there's a change, because if you're going to make that accessible, it's done on computer screens wherever people are located. And that is the rub. What was the judge worried about happening if she just broadcast her hearings to the world? So as you said, you, you anyone can wander in from the street. But her point was that when you're in the physical courtroom, so many factors can be controlled that help the the judge that get, let the judge give the uh, preserve a little bit of dignity for this person who's going through such a very sensitive and uh, you know shame inducing experience as eviction. So uh, you know the tenant usually sits pretty close to the bench. Uh, you know if there are photos that are being shared of the conditions that this person was living in. You know they're all it's all kind of a little bit there's a little bit of privacy that is uh, afforded when you're in the physical courtroom. However, she felt that, you know, when someone is going through such this, you know, people are so ashamed of the details that emerge during the proceedings. And, and when, when it's online like that, everything is on display and nothing can be controlled. And then on top of that, you can't control who's watching. So her, her feeling was that, um, you know, making it virtual uh, it makes it also readily accessible to, you know, potentially nosy neighbors or vindictive enemies who would tune in and maybe gra- take screen grabs or or video from the hearing and share it to social media with the intention of publicly shaming the person who is who is going through the eviction. And in the worst case scenario, Zoom bombers, which we've heard a lot about since Zoom became the, the hot thing could hijack this hearing. And often, you know, those are internet trolls who would put things up like, you know, pornography or uh, racist uh, content uh, just to interfere with the proceedings. And the judge was really worried that some of that material could be triggering for people who are survivors of trauma. So she had a lot of concerns and, and they were all just geared toward making this experience for the tenant who is just facing one of life's most awful experiences a little less undignified. And that just kind of hit my heart. So, um, you know, her position is that hearings are open and anyone can observe, but she will, the way she said it, she'll make them work for, for the access. So you'll have to call the court request the code for the Zoom hearing by giving your name and your email address. So that way she'll have an attendance record. And so, yeah. and that's the difference. That That is the difference. Up until now, you could go into court and be anonymous and watch it. And we've always defended that right. right. In this situation, you have to give your name. And 
so that if somebody does illegally harass a neighbor and do things, she has a list of potential suspects. Normally, I mean, you called me about this because you were tripping on this. This was clearly a bit of (laughs) an internal struggle because in the past, we would have pounded our fists on the table and said, no, 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 it must be anonymous. But, you know, you, you were the key reporter on our project, The Greater Cleveland, that really delved into the struggles of people in poverty. And, and we learned a lot through that. And I, after talking to you, my feeling, we said, you stole my line in the column. I couldn't believe it. You know, I said to you, look, I always got myself, what's the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do here? And you knew in your heart what the right thing to do was. It's to protect these people from the potential Mm -hmm. to public shame. Mm -hmm. And, and there is a difference. The virtual world is not the traditional courtroom and so maybe you do need to change the rules. So we took a very anti-journalism <laughs> position in that column. <laughs> and our our editorial board is eventually going to weigh in on this. I can't wait for that conversation. Oh but, I, but I think you did a tremendous job conveying the humanity of what the judge is dealing with. This is not a judge just acting silly. She really, I mean, you were struck by her sincerity. You oh, me, definitely. Right? Yeah. You know, and I, 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 as we were talking, it occurred to me that, you know, what was bringing me to this conversation was the concern for the tenant and the fact that, you know, an observation of what's happening in the courtroom helps preserve that tenant's rights. But she was coming from the opposite end, but also for the concern of the tenant. And I felt like somewhere in the middle we met and I decided, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, with having to jump through that extra hoop uh, to to preserve a little bit of dignity for the person going through this. And sure, you're giving up the anonymity you might have had if you just walked in off the street and sat down in the courtroom. Yeah, but I, don't, but, but I don't have anonymity if I buy a bottle <laughs> of wine at Target. i got to show my right. idea there. So I, I do have a quibble with what she's doing, though. I don't think it's right to make people call. There ought to be an online place where you register who you are and then they email you the link to the hearing an hour before to right because you know no one, no one will ever answer the phone and then we'll then I'll have to write that right <laughs> right and I and and, and but she seemed in, in she seemed willing to entertain that um, I think I think she was grateful in the end that you actually did understand that she was coming from a good place that this wasn't just some bureaucratic decision. And hey, it's this has been a fascinating civics lesson, and I love when we take long-held traditions and say, "Why are we doing that?" Uh, and we'll have to see. Did you get much blowback, or were people pretty pretty? No, supportive? I, I didn't receive any blowback. Not not yet. So, um, you know, I'm sure I'm sure no, there's there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Leila Tassi, thank you for uh, as always for visiting with us on this week in the mm-hmm. CLE. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. How is Cleveland City Council resolving the challenges of enforcing a mask mandate to battle the coronavirus? They spent four hours talking about this yesterday, Laura Johnston. This is all part of uh, Frank Jackson's push to limit the coronavirus spread. We're hitting record numbers in the city of cases. And so they had yesterday was their one meeting in the in the summer month of July, they spent four hours talking about it and they're worried about how to enforce it. Although unlike Cuyahoga County, which says it's going to follow up on complaints and can't physically do that because there's so many, the the strategy in Cleveland seems to make a little more sense. What is it? Well, they are going to concentrate on 
businesses and places that they're there are they're not following the social distancing rules. And they are going to drop in and do spot checks on bars and restaurants, nightclubs and retailers for enforcement. They realize that they can't be everywhere, but they also realize that the increase in cases among people ages 20 to 29 is a huge problem right now. The city wants to work with the businesses on how to plan for the proper social distancing and mask use. Um, and But they already know they've got some chronic offenders with hundred people, uh, hundreds of people at a time um, in the clubs. One thing that I thought was hilarious in Bob Higgs' story was the people that don't have to wear a mask are the cops who are enforcing this order. Yeah, which makes no sense. I mean, for, for police officers to be walking around without masks on sends a terrible message to the residents of the city. It's it just, I we've talked about it before. That's a mistake. They should be the example. They should be wearing them as much as they can. And I think by not wearing them, they're basically telling the community, yeah, it's not not important. That The chief did say they will make visits Mm -hmm. to bars, that they will do some proactive enforcement. But he did say there's no possible way they could deal with mass camp complaints because they would do nothing else. And there's serious stuff that they have to do in the city. So that's a better strategy. Go to the bars where the problems are. Follow up on the the biggest list of complaints. Uh, It does sound like they are responding to the mass gatherings, which is we discussed yesterday. The number one complaint in Cleveland is by people saying, hey, I got a big gathering across the street and and the coronavirus is going to spread. So it seems like there's a, a nice methodical approach in Cleveland that, that could make a difference. Yeah, right? I think so. And I think they're being really thoughtful about it. Remember, Frank Jackson put out this order on July 3rd, like 8.30 at night, I think, uh, the eve of the July 4th holiday. And it was kind of like there was no teeth in it because he didn't have the ability to put penalties. So this is city council taking something up nearly two weeks later and kind of formalizing what came out then. So they've thought about it for two weeks. They had this four-hour discussion. They've had a history of of giving some citations for the mass gatherings in the past, and they're decided that they're going to try to build this community cooperation, but also clamp down where they know there's a problem and spot check so that if you're a business and you know that the cops could drop in on you at any time, you'd be more likely to follow the rules to make sure that your tables are spaced farther apart and that people are social distancing. So it does seem like they're, they have a very thoughtful approach here. And the people at town hall really ought to be worried because they're number one complaint. <laughs> number one, 27 complaints between March and uh, I think this past Sunday for the city. And then they were the number one complaint in the county over the weekend with seven. So uh, yeah, you would think they would be high on their list to check up on. And Chris Murnowski, who's not, not here today, sent me a note last night that they're peddling some kind of pseudoscience as a defense somewhere on, on Twitter. Um, what, one last thing, though. When Cleveland is doing enforcement, they did seem to say they would try and do warnings as a first mm-hmm. notice, right. right? If So if I have a bunch of people in my backyard and the police come, it doesn't mean I automatically get a ticket. The, the police officer is going to try and educate before... I believe so. But they have, you know, said that if they have to come back, I think three times to a business, they they say they could shut it down. So this isn't, you know, just a slap on the wrist. Well, again, town hall should be sweating that one. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is the number two spot in Cleveland for coronavirus mass complaints? The Steelyard Commons Walmart 
doing about having so many complaints? Or Johnston, what's going on with Walmart? So Walmart across the country is mandating masks. Also Sam's Club, their sister store, the bulk store. Um, and that's because they said 65% of their stores are already in areas that require mass and masks. And they wanted some kind of uh, u- uniformity for the entire chain. So in Steelyard Commons, which is number two for complaints in Cleveland over the past couple of months, customers can expect to see an employee called a health ambassador at the entrance who reminds people to wear a mask. The store reduced the number of entrances. So there's only one way that you can come in. They added signage about masks. And I am sure if they are smart, they will have masks for sale right next to that health ambassador. A Walmart spokesperson told Julie Washington that store management is also working with local law enforcement to figure out how to best partner with them on any concerns that arise. Because you could see this poor health ambassador, and if they're anything like the Walmart greeters of the past, these are older retired people maybe, um, getting into a a skirmish with someone who says they don't want to wear a mask. I mean, I, I guess it was a dollar store in Michigan that somebody got, a security guard got shot over asking to wear masks. So this could, it sounds like pretty simple, but it could be a scary thing to have to tell people, put on your mask, you can't get into Walmart. Is there any thought that Walmart should provide masks? I know some barbers and, and others are have a ready supply for when customers come in without masks, cheap masks that they give them. Has there been any discussion by any of the retail stores about just providing single-use masks to people as they come I have in? not seen that about Walmart. Um but I have seen it at other businesses that, you know, like a boutique I went into where they ask you to sanitize your hands and wear a mask. If you didn't have a mask, they would give you a mask. Um, I don't know that Walmart will do that with its low bottom line. I haven't seen that in, in Target when I walk in. But, you know, certainly if you, you're telling people they have to wear a mask, it would make it a lot easier to be like, here's one for free. It's our gift to you. They could even, you know, like brand it with Walmart on it with a little smiley face. The sad thing is, is there are people that are that are convinced that the masks make it difficult to breathe or reduce the oxygen in their blood. And lots of people now have done videos that show that's not true. They wear six masks and do a pulse ox meter while they're doing it. But but Walmart is going up against some strong beliefs by people. And you're right. These older greeters by the door could be in some risk if they they insist upon it. You know, and if it starts to become a big problem, I imagine Cleveland police will have to go out there and do something about it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we still have a meat and poultry shortage that resulted from the coronavirus pandemic in Northeast Ohio? We actually never really had the shortage, I don't think, but because people were worried about it, the, the stocks kept getting depleted as people stockpiled for a future shortage. But Laura Johnston, Pete Krauss did some checking yesterday, and it seems like the threat of that has diminished. Yeah, so we don't have to worry about a meat and poultry shortage uh, this year. I love that we talk about this like it's production, like it's just meat is made in a factory. But, you know, I guess that's where it's processed. But um, now they say that we've returned to pre-coronavirus levels and industry officials are no longer warning of the shortage or limit on, limits on purchases. And I do remember back a couple of months ago that seeing the bare shelves and seeing the signs that were limiting to people. At one point, I guess pork processing was down about 50%. Some farms actually had to euthanize hogs that had been grown too large to be safely processed, Pete reported. 
but yeah, we never but, really but there was But there was never a shortage. The, the reason that the shelves were emptying was the threat of the shortage. People were, were buying as much as they could, you know, as a, as a hedge against the future shortage. The, uh, what Pete also found, though, is that poultry and ground beef prices are up yes. significantly, but it's not because of a shortage. It's because everybody's buying it to cook it. Right, home. exactly. We're not going out to eat as much. So they're buying what are pretty basic things, right? Like ground beef and chicken that are easy to cook at home. Um, and one other reason that we never had the shortage that people feared, I guess, was that people had already stocked their freezers full of extra cuts of meat. So they're all like my parents and they've got a deep freeze full of possible choices for dinner. So yeah, it, it, it wasn't as bad as we had feared. A more distressing food story I read, we didn't do it, but I read it in one of the national media outlets was the the report by a snack food company. Yes. I think it was Frito-Lay that had record sales because people bought more ruffles than they've ever had Julie before. Julie Washington wrote about that too. She put it in her stress story because we wrote a story about dealing with stress and how do you kind of handle this long-term stress that the coronavirus is pushing. And snack food, I mean, we all knew alcohol was up, right? But snack food is way up. And I told Julie, I was like, I'm really glad to see it's not just me. Although with me, it's it's chips and ice cream. So we should we should check on, uh, it's National Ice Cream Month. Yeah. We've been reporting on good flavors. I wonder if, if that's uh, a, something that's selling out. But the problem with that, of course, is it's going to create a whole lot more people with the underlying conditions that make them vulnerable to the coronavirus. I mean, eating lots and lots of more junk food. It's not like we had a shortage of junk food in the country. <laughs> I mean, people ate a lot before. I, I was surprised that that's the way it went. I thought with people cooking at home, we might see you know, a little bit of a, a healthier kick, but the, but they said they sold more ruffles in a month than they ever sold previously, which I don't think is anything to brag about. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, Laura. Well, all eyes will be on Mike DeWine again today too, if he follows through with his briefing and maybe with the reaction he got to his speech, he'll actually have something substantive to say that offers some kind of concrete strategy that blocks this like they did in the first six, eight weeks of the coronavirus. I sure wish we could track down uh, Amy Acton just to ask her what she thinks of how things are going. You think she's going to tell us? <laughs> well, she, she could talk about being distressed by the way it's spreading and, and she might have some thoughts on how to, to stop it. I look, the, the idea of closing down the whole state really isn't necessary because there are lots of elements that they reopened that are not a cause of the problems, right? So you don't need to change those. I just would like to hear from her. She was the scientist that laid out all of the facts at the beginning, and we just haven't heard well, from her since she resigned. I think Laura what, Hancock asked that question recently, like, how, you know, how often are you talking to Amy Acton um, at the briefings? And Mike DeWine said he was talking to her every day. But, you know, and her reason when she stepped down was that, she just couldn't handle this pace anymore. Like it was, you know, and she, she wanted to focus on other things, but you have to, yeah, but nobody, no one bought it. Right. But you that. have to look at where the state went and you have to think, was this just her saying, I cannot be at the helm of this. If this is what you're going to do to the state. Yeah. She quit right at the time they rushed the reopening and everything she had said previous to that 
was against a rushed reopening. So I, she won't do it because she's too graceful and classy. But it, it, I think it was clear to a lot of people she left because she didn't agree with what uh, John Houston and Mike DeWine were doing. And if that was the reason she left, she's been proven correct because things are getting out of control in a right. hurry. I mean, okay, well, I was just going to say, she had to sign all those health orders. That was her name on the dotted line. Right. And so when you reopen it, she didn't want her name on there. We were speculating, but I think the signs are pretty clear. Well, thanks to Layla for talking about her column. Thank you, Laura. And thank everybody for listening. The audience for this thing is growing and growing. Like I said, we had the most listeners yesterday that we've ever had. So thank you. This week in the CLE, we'll return tomorrow. <laughs>